We are continuing through the book of Jeremiah. So let's turn to Jeremiah 44 this evening. <clears throat> Jeremiah chapter 44. One day, a prairie chicken <laughs> found an egg laying on the, on the ground. It was a big egg. Unbeknownst to the prairie chicken, the egg was an eagle egg, abandoned for some reason, but that's, uh, that's how this little eaglet came to be born uh, in the family of a bunch of prairie chickens. Now, while the eagle is the greatest of all birds, did you hear about the eagle just this week that was shot with two bullets? Um, and they tried to revive it, but today it died. Interesting story in the news right now. Um, but you know, the, while the eagle's the greatest bird, the prairie chicken might just be the lowest of the birds. They stay on the ground, they don't, they don't fly, and they just eat basically garbage. Whatever they can find that's scrounging on the ground. Um, you know, the, the prairie chicken doesn't even know how to fly. But predictably, the, the little eagle grew up amongst those prairie chickens and, um, you know, raised by this family of prairie chickens. But one day the eaglet looked up into the sky and thought, I could go up there. I could reach into the heights of the skies and I could do that. But the other little prairie chicken's like, oh, you're just wacko. You can't do that. You're just like us. You're no better than us. You can stay down here and just dream all you want, but you can't do anything with that. And so the prairie chickens and the eagle just looked back down to their garbage and continued and the eagle died thinking it was a prairie chicken. The end. <laughs> that's the end of my story. Brett, that's not very nice. Listen. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. You know, it's interesting because the problem I've seen today is you and I, we think like prairie chickens sometimes when I think we should be thinking like eagles. You know, um, that's the problem with the, the Jews here in the Jeremiah story. They're thinking like prairie chickens, but they, they really could have soared to heights of safety and blessing and protection from God. And yet, these Jews would say, nah, we're gonna, we're gonna just eat garbage and we're gonna choose to just stay on the ground and protect ourselves and eat the garbage and that's just what we're gonna do. And really that's the story of Jeremiah. They refused to mount up where the Lord wanted them to mount up. Um, early in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord said, repent and I'll protect you. I'll plant you and you won't be plucked up. Remember that? I'll take good care of you. But they said, no, we're gonna do it our own way. And so they end up in total trouble. Now in our narrative of the book of Jeremiah, now a tiny remnant of people is hanging by a thread. And if you were with us on last Wednesday and even Sunday, we saw really what happened. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar did finally come and crush Jerusalem. And then the people that were in poverty were put in the homes of the wealthy. Just a small remnant of poor people put under the lead of Gedaliah. But that guy Ishmael, the Ammonite, came and wiped them out, killed Gedaliah and took him off into captivity and Johanan came and rescued him. But then they were there in Jerusalem that was rubble and they were thinking, oh no, we're toast, what are we gonna do? 
And so remember they said, Jeremiah, tell us, we'll do whatever you tell us to do this time, for real, honest, and for true. But Jeremiah sought the Lord for 10 days and he said, okay, here it is, just stay here in Judah. The Lord will protect us and he'll show mercy to us. It's gonna be great. But if you go to Egypt, you're gonna be dead. It's gonna be brutal. So don't go to Egypt, stay here. And the people said, you're a liar, Jeremiah. You lie. And so they grabbed Jeremiah and Baruch and all the other you know, people that were there, just a tiny little group. The only Jews left. Everybody else is either dead or they're all the way over in Babylon in captivity for 70 years. But now this little tiny group that's left, people living in Judea, they make their way down to Egypt. And that's what we looked at on Sunday, down to Egypt. Always a bad idea. Egypt being a type of the world. But we saw Jeremiah as they were on the doorstep of Egypt. Um, he started making a little foundation out of rocks and got rocks from the brick kiln and started making this little foundation, a little, you know, small rock thing. And they're like, okay, Jeremiah, what are you doing now? Remember all the, remember the, the object lessons? Remember that time he took a piece of pottery and threw it down and broke it? And they're like, Jeremiah, why'd you do that? That was a great piece of pottery. Well, even as that pot broke, so is the Lord gonna break you. Like that's, that's stuff Jeremiah did all the time. So you can almost see it. You know, they, they're rebelling against Jeremiah. We're going to Egypt. We don't care what you have to say. And so they went to Egypt and now Jeremiah's just there. <laughs> okay, Jeremiah, what are you doing now? Well, I'm building a little foundation. And he said to them, the foundation I'm making is where they're gonna set Nebuchadnezzar's throne. And his throne will be here and his pavilion will be here and he's gonna come to crush you. What a nice little nighttime story for them at that time. What a moment of truth. I wonder, I just wonder, was there a stench of, you know, a stench of fear uh, in their hearts? Because Jeremiah, you gotta remember so far, Jeremiah has been 100% accurate every time. And yet the people were unwilling to listen. And really we find the same problem today where people are unwilling to listen to the word of God. They would believe culture or things that are popular or seemingly relevant uh, over what the Bible actually says. And Jeremiah is gonna call him out on it and he's gonna deal with this. And as we pick it up where we left off in chapter 44, we have here sort of the, you know, what's, what's, what's going on with the people and the way they're gonna respond to all this. So the, the remnant that's left in Egypt now, they're still gonna refuse to obey, that's the sad truth here. Um, and so, you know, the indictment against the remnant is the first section of this chapter, the indictment against the remnant. That's verses one through 14. Then we'll see the explanation of the remnant of the people. They're gonna say, well, here's why we're doing what we're doing. They're gonna answer Jeremiah and the Lord. So the explanation, verses 15 through 19, and then we're gonna have Jeremiah's answer to the remnant verses 20 uh, to the end. So let's take a look at this. First of all, we hear the remnant, uh, the indictment against the remnant. It says in verse one, and the word, of the, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews which dwelt in the land of Egypt, which dwell at Migdol and Tapanese um, and at Noph and the country of Pathros saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation and no man dwelleth therein. 
because of their wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger in that they were to, went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they knew not, neither they, ye, nor your fathers. How be it, I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. But they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, nor turned from their wickedness to burn no incense unto other gods. Wherefore my fury and mine anger was poured forth and was kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are wasted and desolate as at this day. Therefore now thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, wherefore commit ye this great evil against your souls to cut off from you a man and a woman, a child and a suckling out of Judah to leave you none to remain in that you provoke me to wrath with the works of your hands, burning incense unto other gods in the land of Egypt, whither ye be gone to dwell, that you might cut yourselves off and that you might be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Now pause just for a second. Here the Lord is just saying, this is what's happened. He's just you know, speaking all these things. It's a done deal. It's a matter of fact, everything's locked in. But you know, there's a few things here that kind of, kind of cause me, you know, gives me reason to pause. And that is verse four. The Lord says, how be it? I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early, sending them saying, don't do these abominable things that I hate. And really those that would reject the prophets, do you remember there in the story of Luke chapter 16, when the rich guy was at the table, uh, you know, and he threw scraps down to the poor, the poor guy, Lazarus, and both of them died, the poor guy and the rich guy. And they went to, do you remember, Abraham's bosom, which was that place called paradise, but also Hades, there's two sides. And remember the story there that Jesus told about how the rich man was like, oh, Abraham, Abraham, please send Lazarus just to, just to get a dip of water on his finger so he could touch the end of my tongue. I'm thirsty, I'm dying of this horrible torment. That was Hades. But Abraham said, sorry, you know, uh, he can't go there. There's a great gulf between you and me and there's no passing through there. You're stuck there and that's the way it is. Well, then at least the guy said, go and send, you know, Lazarus back to earth to, to tell my brothers and my fathers and my family, you know, about this place that it's real, Hades and, and paradise and that you're gonna go north or south. And Abraham said, Lazarus could go and tell, but if your fathers wouldn't even hear the prophets, if your fathers wouldn't even take heed to the warnings that I gave, they're not gonna listen to Lazarus, you know, Lazarus, this poor beggar, and they're gonna end up where you are. See, that's the problem. The Lord is the one who's so loving that he sent for centuries the prophets to tell these people of their wrongdoing and to correct their bad way. For you and I, we're even worse off in the sense that, man, if we rebel against the Lord, not only do we have the prophets, but we have the apostles and the New Testament. And we have the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, God's word in black and white, as clear as can be. And yet people say, you know what? We don't really like this, remember? And they rip the pages out of the things they don't like, even though it 
is really the, Lord, the Lord's word. He says, this is my word. But people don't care. And they just keep doing, doing what they're doing, thinking that it's never really gonna come to pass. What the Bible says is gonna come to pass. And so these words, boy, how are they landing on the hearts of these people? We're gonna see here in a minute, but you just hear the heart of the Lord. Even in this verse, the, in verse four, it says, oh, like there's a passionate plea. Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. Don't do it. That's the Lord's passion for his people. But he does everything short of making them do the right thing. He still gave them a free will and they can do whatever they want. If they wanna worship other pagan deities and other gods, they can. God's not gonna stop them. He's done everything he can in order to warn them off of that. It's that free will that we have. Well, and then it also says that they were burning incense to other gods in the land of Egypt. So not only were they doing it in Jerusalem, but even now they're getting sucked into the gods of Egypt. And we'll see that as we get further into it. But further indictment goes on verse nine. He says, have you forgotten the wickedness of your fathers and the wickedness of the kings of Judah and the wickedness of their wives and your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives, which they have committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They are not humbled even unto this day. Neither have they feared nor walked in my law nor in my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will set my face against you for evil and to cut off all Judah. And I will take the remnant of Judah that have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there. And they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall even be consumed by the sword and by the famine, and they shall die from the least even to the greatest by the sword and by the famine, and they shall be an excretion, an astonishment, and a curse and a reproach. Pause there for a second. Uh, did you notice on Sunday I read that word excretion uh, as well once? In the King James, it says excretion. What is that word? Well, it's something you don't even really wanna mention in church. Um, it's that which the body considers waste. Are you with me? <laughs> now, I'm not trying to be cute or funny here, but the truth is, does anybody know what the Hebrew word here for excretion is? It's avoh. It's true, that's what the Hebrews say, the word for excretion, or that which the body doesn't wanna keep, um, human waste, uh, is the word excretion, which is the word law in the Hebrew. That's kind of interesting to me. Um, Muhammad should have done his research, maybe. Uh, you know, I mean, 600 years after, uh, you know, Christianity, you'd think that he'd figured that out. But be that as it may, uh, that's just a freebie for him. Verse 13, for I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall escape or remain, that they should return into the land of Judah to, to the which they have desired to return to dwell there. For none shall return, but such as shall escape. And the answer there is like, well, nobody's gonna escape. So nobody's going home. Everybody's gonna die there in Egypt. That's, a, that's the sad truth 
of the indictment against Israel. The, the judgment has already been given. It's as good as done. Now, um, interesting, they went to try to be safe or, or, and, and they were going there to kind of start over uh, in Egypt, it seems. But they went back to the old sins that hurt them really before. You know, they wanted a new start, but they needed basically a new heart. Do you see that? Their heart was still sinful and they were still drawn to pagan deities and what have you. And so the Lord just says, you guys are toast. Now, a good response. Before we read the response of these people, what would you say if you were thinking, what would be a good response of the people? In my you know, mind's eye, I think, man, the people falling to their knees and saying, Lord, forgive us. We have sinned against you. We have sinned against your word and we've not kept your commandments, covenants and statutes. And we repent of the evil and we will go back today if you will allow us by your grace. You know, like that, that would have been a good answer. But uh, brace yourself because we're gonna hear the answer of the people. And this largely is a lot of people today hardened against the Lord and they could care less about God. They could care less about his word. And they basically um, say, whatever, God, and that's what these people are gonna say. This is the response now, the explanation of the remnant of the people that are there in Egypt. Verse 15, then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods and all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah saying, now pause just for a second, what just happened there? Did you see something there? Kind of snuck it in there. And it, there was hints of that when God was indicting the people because normally in this culture, they wouldn't have indicted the women at all. They would have just said, all the men of Israel have sinned against the Lord. But did you see earlier in our passage here, you know, the Lord was saying, man, your women have been burning incense to other gods, you know, and, and, um, and what have you. The Lord indicted them about that, as well as the men. He said, your, your men have been sort of standing by watching. And then the, the people here, in their response, we, we learned that it was the men which knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods and all the women that stood by. What's that all about? Well, herein lies an unpopular biblical theme. And I'm gonna tell it to you anyway. <laughs> um, because it's important to know this. And, and this is one of those things where some people, and maybe even tonight, I'll have people tonight to say, yeah, whatever, Brett. But be careful because this is the word of God. And um, it's, it's not popular. It's not socially acceptable, what I'm about to say. Um, it's even perhaps hated by some. Um, and even colleges and Christian universities now just kind of ignore what the Bible says about this. Uh, churches largely could care less about this part of the Bible. But I'm just gonna tell you anyway, and that is this. Isn't it interesting that God wired men and women differently? Men and women are different. Newsflash, write it down in your notes. Men <laughs> and women are different. And I wanna tell you this because um, it's not a better than or less than than. Let's get that out of the way right now. Uh, you know, I, I believe we men and women were created in God's image and the best parts of women and the best parts of men, we start to see somewhat of an image, a picture of who God is. And I'm thankful for that. If God was just a man with only manly characteristics, he'd be very logical, but not very 
sensitive and not very you know, loving or kind. He might just be really logical. Uh, that'd be a scary thing, having only a logical God. But God is, you know, he's got this, uh, almost like he's the father for sure, but he's also got this compassion and love and this nurturing quality that reminds someone of even a mother. I'm not saying that he is a mother, as some stupid, you know, uh, pagans try to claim that God is a woman. That's just dumb. Um, but as it turns out, God encompasses all of the best that we can say, both in men and women. Now, with that said, we are wired differently. And the problem is the Lord gave us different roles. But one of the things that the, the Bible teaches, and you know, you don't have to look too far to see this, but um, the, the Lord says that the man was not made for the woman, but the woman was made for the man. Ooh, people don't like that. Even though the Bible says that. What does that mean? Well, do you remember in the Garden of Eden, there's Adam and he's naming the animals, Mr. and Mrs. Hippopotamus, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Shark. And, and then suddenly, he, I wonder if Adam's like, Mr. and Mrs. Lord, he's alone. And remember of the, all the creation, God said of, the, of all the things, he's looked at the sky that he had made, it is good. The trees, oh, it is good. The birds and the, the animals, they are good. And then he looks at the man and he said, it is not good. <laughs> That's what he said. But I didn't finish the sentence. He said, it is not good that man should dwell alone. So he caused Adam to fall into deep sleep, took a rib from his side, fashioned woman. When he woke up, he said, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. It's like, you know, the, the, the light bulb went on. Hey, there was Mr. and Mrs. Hippomotamus. Now there's a Mr. and Mrs. Adam. And so the Lord created Adam and Eve. Now here's the thing. This is what you got to understand. How did mankind fall in sin? Well, that, that's something that's going to, kind of haunt the poor gals for millennia. Uh, now, now, what's interesting, are the, are the ladies responsible for the original sin, the first sin? Well, yes and no. You might say, okay, well, uh, Eve was the one who took the first bite and then Adam stumbled in and kind of said, okay, I'll take a bite too. And, and so was it Eve's fault? Well, as it turns out, note it in your Bible as you read through the Bible, Adam's always the one who gets blamed. You never hear where except for one time that I'm gonna show you here in a minute. But you never really hear, oh, that was Eve's fault. You know, Eve was the one who made mankind sin. Nope, Adam always gets the blame and here's why. You might even argue along with that eating of the fruit, part of that sin was Adam was not doing his job as a husband. He was not covering his wife. He was not protecting her. He was not there, you know, um, doing what the Lord would do for us, watching over us. But that, that was the role of the man to watch and cover. And he wasn't doing that at all. Now that's interesting. And I always joke around about this, but it's just absolutely true. Men and women are wired differently. How did the woman fall? Well, she fell because the serpent came and said, oh, the day you eat of this fruit, you will not die, but your eyes will be enlightened. Does that sound like anything you've heard before? Well, every other new age religious movement that's ever happened talks about enlightenment. And you know, what's funny about that. Have you ever noticed how many new age organizations and new age cults and whatever, how many of those are led by men? Very few. Much of what's new age is a lot of women that are saying, we wanna go deeper. We wanna be enlightened. We wanna find our third eye of understanding and contemplate our navel. Most of us guys are like, don't wanna do that. That's not a good plan. <laughs> Contemplating the navel. Um, but 
But women have this desire to grow deeper spiritually. Men, we're not really wired that way as much. I'm not, I'm not saying this is across the boards, it's just generalizations. But men, it, it, it's almost like, you know, when you think of the temptation, Eve was tempted. Would Adam have been tempted by that? Saying, hey, Adam, your eyes will be enlightened. You'll become like God. I think Adam would have, hmm, whatever, and walked away. <laughs> Guys generally are not into that stuff for the most part. How did Adam fall? Well, Adam fell because there was a naked lady in front of him. Oh, wow. And there's Eve with her apple. Hey, you big boy, come and take a bite. He's like, okay, I'll take a bite of the apple. Um, that's the way the man fell. So not only was Adam not covering his wife, but he fell by not, you know, not covering his wife and then just, just being sucked into biting the apple and he didn't even care what it meant. He didn't even have any idea the discussion really, it seems. So, so this, this idea of the fall of man, as it turns out, the rest of the Bible for the most part says that Adam was responsible for that sin. And Eve doesn't complain for it, largely. Until you start handing out responsibilities in the church in the New Testament. And that, I'd like you to keep your finger here and turn with me. Why don't you turn with me to, to 1 Timothy chapter two. New Testament, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, page 274, <laughs> if you have the anointed Bible. No, I'm just, just kidding. In 1 Timothy, of course, Paul is giving the, you know, Christianity 101, ministry 101, teaching young Timothy how to lead the church. And that's why, you know, these are called the, you know, um, ministry uh, epistles, you know, as, as they're called oftentimes. Um, but great, great perspectives on why we do things the way we do them in church. But here it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. Well, let's back up to verse 8. I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and without doubting. Um, now that's interesting that he doesn't say that women pray. Why did he say that? Because men, I don't think we have quite the proclivity to pray as women do. Um, I think women have a, a more natural inclination to pray. I, I just seen that over the years. Call me a male chauvinist or whatever you want to call me. I've just observed that as being true. Um, but then it shifts gears, verse nine. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided or you know, braided hair um, or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Now, pause for a second. This is where we get into some tricky stuff. Can a woman not braid her hair? Now we have to look at the context and there are some things in the Bible that we get context and we realize, well, that's no longer the same. It doesn't mean the same thing. Um, did Laura Ingalls, let me ask you this. Was Laura Ingalls uh, worshiping Astrith or Diana, the goddess, by braiding her hair? No, uh, Little House of the Prairie, when Laura Ingalls braided her hair, it was probably because her mom was sick of combing it all the time uh, and got you know junk in it when she was fishing and getting dirt in her hair. And uh, So there is, there, there, the reason I say this is there was a context, context of this whole thing of women braiding their hair and plating it with gold. And that is, there was a certain type of woman that was doing this and they were literally the temple prostitutes. 
Okay, I hope you understand this. These are, these are women that were purposefully trying to seduce men. And, and so here it's basically saying, don't do that behavior. You know, he says, also women should be more modest. And when it says shamefaced, this is King James translation. So you girls are like, do I have to walk around church like, like, is that really right? No, the difference is what, what the prostitutes were doing, they would stand in those niches. You can go, there's a, there's a great archeological ruin at Jerish. And I always take people, when we go to the country of Jordan on our Israel trip, we cross the border into Jordan. And this country, this, the city of Jerish is, supposed, is really like the most amazing archeological dig in the Middle East huge city that was a twin city of Jerusalem and it was destroyed about the time of Christ. So, so when they tilted everything back up and the pillars and everything of the city and the temples and all that, it looks really a lot like it would have during the time of Jesus. So it's, it's almost like looking at a snapshot of Jerusalem as it was during the time of Christ. So it's, it's just really fun to see it. But one of the things that you realize is, wow, they were into their temples of Zeus and the goddess Diana. The biggest temples like to Diana and there's these huge pillars. And, but in the wall of this temple are still the niches. They're like little carved out um, shelves. And the women would stand on those and dance nakedly. And they would look with luring faces, you know, trying to you know, seduce walking men into the city of Jarish. And they were supposed to go in and worship the goddess Diana, which was the goddess of fertility and sexuality. And so they would pay the money and basically sleep with the pet temple prostitutes. And that was going on in the first century. So the idea here is that women of the church shouldn't really be doing that kind of stuff. That's the idea. It's pretty general. It's, it's, and, and it's pretty easy to see that, that what is right and wrong uh, as you look at this. And it does help, by the way, to do a, a Greek New Testament study on the words of this because the King James uh, I think does a little disservice with the kind of some of the wording that was chosen in the translation, quite frankly. The shamefacedness part that you might say better um, with a, a face of humility. That would be a better translation. And braids are okay. But if you're, you know, it'd be, it'd be a little bit like, you know, if you were to say, what does a prostitute look like today? And what does she do? Well, don't do those things. That's, that's the same kind of admonition here. So it's, there is context here to this. Now here's where it gets tricky. The next thing we're about to read, people say, well, that was also contextual. Uh, women didn't get to do anything fun in the, in the first century. And so that's why Paul's about to say the next thing. Well, let's read on. It says, you know, these women professing godliness with good works. Verse 11, let the women learn in silence with subjection. Um, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. Isn't that an interesting biblical statement? Adam was not deceived. He sinned, he gets the blame for it, but one of the things he didn't do was be deceived by Satan. That's interesting to me. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Saved, like you go to heaven if you have babies? What are we like, Mormons now? Having heaven babies and stuff? No. The word saved there is the word sozo in the Greek. And it's, it's a word that can mean salvation, but it also means like uh, your life will be blessed. Um, generally, what the Bible is saying here is the woman that is given to loving and raising children, that she's gonna be the blessed woman. And, and how, many, how many of you moms can say amen to that? 
You know, raising kids, you know, Deb and I marvel at, you know, all the things we've done in our lives with our, you know, work and career and things. Our favorite thing is our children. We really do love our kids and, and we love hanging out with them and it's just a joy to us. And um, man, you know, some, some people, you know, don't really see that as a big deal. The Bible says, by the way, women are gonna be saved. It's gonna be one of their greatest things is gonna be uh, loving their kids and, and, and later on in Titus, to love their husbands and be keepers of the home. Now in the 60s and 70s, you know, we had the women's lib movement and they said, forget that. Women shouldn't be caring for the children. So our children had to care for themselves and have, you know, uh, daycare. And uh, we changed our whole philosophy. How's that working out for us? The latchkey kid thing, you know, some of you grew up where you came home to an empty house, you know, and, and now our culture is, is now seeing the, the fruit, which is not so good, of, of, a, of a liberated society. But then, you know, the, this whole thing about women and their role in the church, that they should not usurp authority over the man. It's an interesting thing, but here's where it gets down to just honest truth. The Lord said, men, I want you to lead the church because... I made men to where they're not as easily deceived by spiritual things. They're not as easily duped like Eve was. Now, does that mean women are dumb? Of course not. In fact, you might even say it makes them maybe even more intellectual in some ways. I mean, like when I think about it, you know, it's the, it's the oaf that's sitting around, I don't care about enlightenment or, you know, becoming more like God. Ugh. But the woman say, oh, I want my eyes to open to be more like the Lord. Like, like that's a great endeavor and we can become more like the Lord. It, and this is not an insult to women. This is just the Lord saying, I've got roles. And one of the roles I want the men to do is to be the guardian of teaching. To be the guardian, men are gonna be the guardians of doctrine. Now, when I was a young man, I did a big study of church history. And uh, one of the things that you learn about you know, church history is some of the biggest heresies that popped up over the centuries. You'll find it, it's true. And I'm not trying to be insulting. This is just the facts. But many of them were started by women who got out of a covering of a, of a, of a pastor in a church. And they kind of said, we, we have a new understanding, a new enlightenment. Check it out, see if I'm wrong. But it's, it's the truth, you'll find it. You know, the various uh, heresies that surfaced, the Montanists and others, that actually, by the way, some of those heresies from the first several centuries would eventually lead to things like Mormonism and things like Jehovah's Witnessism, those kinds of things. False teaching, false doctrine. Now, that's why the Lord says, I want the men to teach. They're kind of logical, they're boring. I'm gonna put in the words here. Uh, they're not passionate as, as, as much. Uh, so we're so thankful for the women in the church. But when it comes to the teaching, that the men are to take authority there and that the women are to be in submission to that teaching. Um, not a popular theme. But the reason that you say, Brett, why are you in all this New Testament stuff? Well, it's been going on from Genesis, book of Genesis, even here in Jeremiah, what happens? And, and this, is where, this is where the biggest problem lies. You know, you wanna know what the biggest problem with women is? The answer, men. <laughs> it's true. The biggest problem with women is men. Adam was a knucklehead. He should have been there loving his wife, standing with her, protecting her from the lure of the serpent. 
In the story of Jeremiah, the problem wasn't that the women were lighting incense to the goddess, the queen mother of heaven. It's where were the men? We're gonna see in this story, the men were just standing by going, okay, poopsie, great, you're lighting uh, incense to a pagan, whatever. And the men weren't there doing what they were called to do. You know, it was Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, the end. He didn't say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Right, honey? Is that okay, dear? Don't hit me. You know, that wasn't Joshua. These men, see, that's where our story gets kind of crazy here. We find out from Jeremiah chapter 44, we find out in Egypt at least, it was the women that were sort of leading the charge. Let's go back to our text. It says here in Jeremiah in our text um, that the women, and, and, and these people, it's their own mouths, you know. Verse 15, all their men which knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods and all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even the people, and then we're gonna hear their answer. But this is what was going on. The men were just standing by and here's the problem. Christian men today, and I'm not gonna say as much Athe Creek, I'm proud of our brothers here at Athe Creek in a humble sort of way, that we've got men that are, that are growing to be strong men. But man, that's one of my goals with Ironworks. When we do our Ironworks, like we're gonna do this coming Saturday, one of my goals is say, man, we need men that have a spine. You know, we don't need to whimper in a corner as, as the world says, male privilege and male, you know, authority stinks and, you know, men are stupid and, you know, and, and the whole, you know, campaign that's been going on for decades now to make men insignificant and women can do everything men can do and all this stuff. You know, it's like when you Google, I don't know if it's still this way, maybe they fixed it because it became a big news item, but, you know, when you Google women can, and then there's all this list of amazing things. Women can have babies. Women can be goddesses. Women can, you know, love their children and have, you know, women, and so long as, and then just type in men can and see what the autofill goes to. Men can do nothing. Men can be abusive. Men can be ugly and idiots. And like, it's, there's nothing nice to say about men. Um, there's that algorithm that I think only continues to change the worldview. And I'm not saying that men are great or anything. You know, we're all sinners. I, when I look at humanity, men and women as a whole, we're all failure, sinner, wacko, wretches. So we can't just say, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. No, stop that. Just say, I'm a wicked sinner. But the Lord says, but I can save you and forgive you of all your sins, men and women. And then the Lord says, and, and by the way, even though you are wretched and your best works are like filthy rags, the best thing you have to offer is nothing. But even with that, the Lord says, but I can use each of you. I'll forgive you of your sins. And men, I want you to lead the church and I want you to teach good doctrine and be the guardians of doctrine. And women, man, I want you to be a part of the church as well, but your role is different. And it's gonna be including being lovers of your husbands and keepers of the home, raising children. I know that's an old, old school, antiquated, prehistoric notion. But as it turns out, some of the happiest women you'll find on this earth are the ones who have really poured into their children and their homes, just like the Bible prescribes. It's not popular, but it is what the Bible teaches, and it's not even hard to find it. I'm, I'm just scratching the surface. We could go deep on this one. We could spend weeks exploring scriptures on the men's role and the women's role. But, um, but it's all meant to be a blessing. Even the woman's role as a, well, bro, what if I'm called to singleness? Great, by the way, the Bible talks about that too. 
yeah, but Brett, I'll be saved in childbearing if I'm a woman. What happens to me if I'm not having kids? Well, as it turns out, I believe the Bible gives a special calling to the single woman and the single man. And they can do things that married people can't. Um, Paul said, I wouldn't you be single like me. Uh, and those that are married will have trouble in the flesh. Paul, prom- that's a promise of God's word. Stick that to your mirror as a promise of God. Those of you that are married will have trouble in the flesh. <laughs> Memorize that one. Uh, but Paul said, that's why I, I would that you be single. Like there's a place for singleness and, and for women that are singles, there are things you can do too and, and have roles that the Bible has laid out. But, but it's your job to search out the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true or false. The world would say, you know, Brett, that's just horrible. George Fox has literally come to the church and scolded me for teaching that women should not be pastors. And you know, that's just the way they believe. And you know, not all their profs, but as a school, that's what they believe now. And it's really sad because their school is struggling now. They, they, once you open that door and start saying, well, we're gonna rip that out of the Bible. They've, they've done that with some other issues. Now they're having trouble with transgender issues on the campus and they don't know what to do. Once you start you know, not being able to plug the holes in the, in the dam, the water starts spewing. And that's where George Fox, in my opinion, is at. Good luck with that. The, the best thing George Fox College could do is get back to the book. Just get back to the Bible and believe it. And not the TNIV Bible, the today's new international version that's gender sensitive, no. Get back to the, the, the real Bible, you know, whether it's the, the pre-84 NIV or King James or one of the great translations, but let's, let's get back to what the Bible says. Now, if you're at George Fox, by the way, because we, we have not only uh, students there, but we have professors that come to Athe Greek uh, from George Fox. We love you. That's great. Uh, you know, it's a great school. My daughter went to George Fox, got her master's degree there. Um, I'm just saying that as an institution, they're in dangerous territory. And, and, but the reason I can condone some of it is because there's great profs over at George Fox, amazing ones. And then there's ones that are not so great. And the ones that are embracing this liberal theology. Um, and sadly, a lot of it tends to be in their psychology department and also in their theology department. You want solid theology at George Fox? Go ask the math profs and the science profs. They're the, they're the real, real theologians because they believe in logic and math. What verse was I on again? Um, <laughs> oh man. Well, you know, this, this whole thing here is really sad because this is the very first thing we learn is that the women were just lighting up their little censers and their incense to their pagan gods and the men were like, well, whatever you wanna do, honey. Um, the men needed to grow a spine here in this story and cover their wives and say, honey, as for me and my house, we will worship the Lord. I wonder if some of you guys have taken too passive of a role with the information that your wife is you know, gaining. Maybe she's been studying the Bible and that's really great, but is she like 10 times deeper than you are? Oh yeah, my wife, she goes deep. Is that a good thing? You know, if your wife, I'm just gonna, again, this, this drives people nuts when I say this, but if a woman who's married comes up and says, Brad, I have a Bible question for you. Oftentimes you'll hear me and one of my pastoral staff, if you're asking us, if you're a nice lady who's saying, Brad, I've got a deep theological question. Um, I'll, I'll oftentimes say, well, what does your husband say? Um, because the Bible, do you know what the Bible says? When a woman asks the, one of the pastors about a question, what's, what's he supposed to say? Go and ask your husband. Oh, but Brett, you don't understand. My husband's a nincompoop. Yeah, that's the problem. Go ask him anyway. 
My husband doesn't know the Bible like you, Pastor Brett. Do you understand how weird that is? So what you gotta do is you go ask your husband. Well, your husband, and if you're the husband here, if your wife's asking you theological questions, did you know that it's your job to say, I'm gonna dig and find the answer to that? And even if you have to tell your, your wife, you know what, I don't know the answer right now, but I'm gonna dig. And that's where I love it. That's where you come talk to me as a man and say, man, I wanna lead my home and I wanna have an answer for my wife. And so Brett, tell me, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? <laughs> did, did Adam have a belly button? Uh, the, the deep questions of the Bible. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but I know that that's, that's a strange view in this world to even say something like, go and ask your husband, but that's chauvinistic and butter. No, that's biblical. And you can choose to say, I don't like it. And I think it's chauvinistic and I'm leaving Athey Creek. We need the space anyway. So, no, just, just kidding. Just, just kidding, just kidding. Parking lot's full, so. Well, back to verse 15. <laughs> so verse 15, this is again, the explanation of the remnant. Now this is painful, it, it gets really painful. It says, then all the men which knew their wives had burned incense and other gods and all the women that stood by a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros answered Jeremiah saying, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. Whew, that's painful. But, we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth to burn incense unto the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings unto her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of victuals and were well and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her cakes to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? What's this saying? Well, this is crazy. They're, they're basically saying, well, when we were worshiping the queen of heaven, things were rosy and great. And then when we stopped worshiping her, then things went really badly. Now you gotta understand, this is what we call in the wonderful world of psychology, I say that sarcastically, thought distortions. You know, it's an interesting thing because you can see if it's true in psychology, it's also true in the Bible. But this idea of thought distortions where you start thinking through stuff and you're just way off on your thinking. You know, um, you know, a thought distortion is, man, I'm never gonna pass math. Uh, you know, I'm such a stupid idiot. I'm not gonna ever graduate from school. Well, that's probably not true. If you were me, it was probably true, but if, not for you. Now, math is, you know, for some of you, this is tough, right? But you, that's a thought distortion. I will never pass, but I'm never gonna grow. No, that's a thought distortion. You're being, you know, uh, exaggeratory in your thinking. But thought distortion here is this. These people are saying, we're doing the math in our head here. And when we were worshiping the queen mother of heaven, Things were rosy, and then when we worshiped God, things were not good. Now, here's the problem with their thoughts. They never really worshiped God. During the time of Jeremiah, these people never repented and really worshiped the Lord. Um, they thought they might. They, they sort of tacked on some temple worship with some Baal worship, but it wasn't sincere at all. So that's the first distortion. But they, they start thinking, well, things were great when we worshiped the queen. 
Now, who is this queen? Well, this is interesting. Uh, man, another tangent for me to go off on here uh, tonight. Um, so the queen, probably we're talking about Isis and Horus. Do you know the story of Isis and Horus? Well, as it turns out, every culture and people group of ancient times had the same sort of deities that they worship. They really are the same people, but they're just different names. You know, like, you know, if, if here in Egypt they had, you know, uh, Isis and Horus, if you go through the Greeks, you have Af uh, Aphrodite and Eros. Same, same basic group and, and same basic worship. If you're in Rome, of course, and this is great for you that are getting ready to celebrate that satanic day, Valentine's Day. <laughs> Do you know who Isis and Horus or uh, in, in Rome it was Venus and? Cupid, as it turns out. And by the way, there are links to that in Valentine's Day, believe it or not, uh, the Venus and Cupid worship and all that. Uh, of course, in Babylon, it was Ashtoreth uh, and Tammuz. Um, but the idea is each culture and people group of ancient times has the same, you know, queen of heaven sort of worship practice. Um, the ancient Babylonian one is the one that we still see even in modern times in sort of a strange way. Uh, this is where I get off on a tangent, but have you ever wondered when did the Catholic Church start to venerate Mary above where she should have been honored? If you were raised a Catholic, you know, and depending on with your, you know, Vatican II Catholic or Roman Catholic, it depends on how you view all this stuff, but largely the Roman Catholicism, have you wondered, when did they start praying to Mary? And you can look it up, answers, catholicanswers.com. Um, they'll tell you why they pray to Mary. Uh, I've had Catholics say, we don't pray to Mary. Well, yes, you do. Uh, just look at your Catholic websites and you'll see that, yeah, praying to Mary. And the, the, when did that happen and how did that happen? Well, by the way, this is where people came up and said stuff and it happened to be popes. Uh, throughout the centuries, papal edicts came down and they made decrees saying, you know, you must pray to Mary. Now, why was that? Well, there was nobody teaching the Bible in the Catholic Church back in those days, early in the Catholic Church. Uh, they used to chain the Bible to the pulpit so that only the priests could look at the Bible. The Bible was not for people, it was for the priests or the monasteries. And because of the ignorance, people thought, oh, I'm too bad, I can't talk to Jesus. So if I can't talk to Jesus because of my sin, then I at least am gonna talk to his mother. And honestly, that's where it came from. And very early in Catholicism, they say around 400 uh, AD is when they started sort of praying to Mary uh, after papal edicts came down. Now, now here's the problem with Catholicism, in my opinion, is they put you know, Catholic church tradition on the same plane as the Bible. So if a Pope says something, it's equal to the Bible. It's equally as inspired as the Bible. I, I, I don't believe that. And it's real easy to tell you why I don't believe that. And whether you're talking about Popes in Catholicism or pastors or preachers in Protestantism, I can't defend church history. There's a lot of things Popes that have said were just downright evil. There were a lot of evil Popes in history. And there were also a lot of evil Protestant pastors in history. So I can't defend their behavior, but I can defend the Bible. You see, God gave us his word and this book is complete. You don't need anything more than this right here. When people add to this and come up with stuff like we need to pray to Mary, you have to kind of say, well, wait a minute, does that fit with what the Bible says? Well, no, we read in the book of Timothy that Paul said there's only one mediator between God and man and that is Jesus Christ, the Messiah.
We don't need to pray to Mary because we can pray to Jesus. Is praying to Mary better than praying to Jesus? No, no. And not only that, the Bible doesn't say anything about praying to Mary. I hope you understand that. Look for it in the Bible. You will not find it, not even close. But it says, don't pray to anybody except for the Lord himself. Now, when did they start to exonerate, venerate Mary? Well, it was when Constantine was sort of saved. And, and you know, history tells us that he saw the cross and in this sign conquer. And so he made everybody in his army become Christians. And whether he was really a Christian historically or not, I have no idea, I wasn't there. Um, some people believe it was just a political move. You know, and the church had been persecuted for centuries and now Constantine comes and says, we're not gonna persecute you. In fact, I love you guys, the church. All you Christians, you're with me. And the church was like, yeah, let's conquer. So they all went with Constantine. Well, the, the priests back in Rome were saying, yeah, Constantine, but what about us? And what, what were they priests of? They were priests of Mystery Babylon, the ancient Babylonian religion of, you know, uh, Venus and Cupid or Semiramis and Temuz, the same thing. Um, and it was from paganism these guys were doing. So, so Constantine, after Constantine died about 100 years later, they made Christianity the legal religion for Rome. And so suddenly they say, well, what do we do with our priests? The priest, they said, listen, chill, man. You guys just be priests of the church. We'll call you father, because that's what they called him before. Even though Jesus said, call no man your father. Um, we'll throw on the Yule log during the time of Yule. What was that? Well, what we call Christmas. Oh, well, Christmas was not the time where Christ was born, but it was, it was a whole pagan uh, holiday. And so they said, listen, just keep your pointy hats and your purple robes and just be Christian priests. And by the way, you guys worship the queen mother of heaven. Well, we'll just replace that with Mary, the queen mother of Jesus and sort of give her that same veneration or honor that we gave to the queen mother of Samaramas Tammuz or Venus and Cupid. And so there was this adoption of things and a lot of things have stuck. Easter, Christmas, those were things from ancient pagan stuff. We've talked about this. At Christmas time, I talked about this. Um, if you're interested, should we have Christmas trees and stuff? Uh, what would he call that? I think it was called the branch, um, the righteous branch. There, uh, back at Christmas time, I did a study on that. But that's where a lot of these traditions came from, the Yule log, mistletoe, all of that came from pagan practices um, and including the, the honoring of the mother of Jesus because they had a woman in their previous uh, worship that was part of worship. So it just made everybody kind of chill out, say we're just transferring some of the things. It's all the same. It's a little bit like today when, you know, Wolf Blitzer on CNN says, Islam and Christianity really are the same religions. You know, we, you know Allah and Jehovah really are the same. Uh, we just all believe in one God. It's the same God. And we really all believe pretty much the same stuff. Um, that's pretty much what happened there in the, you know, the 300 AD with Constantine and that whole thing. Now, if you're a real Christian or you're a real Muslim, none of us are saying, yeah, they're the same. No, they're not. None, the Muslims, the radical fundamentalist Muslims are not saying, yeah, Allah and Jehovah are the same. Um, they're not saying that, uh, nor are Christians. Only Wolf Blitzer on CNN and college professors instructing your children. <laughs> but all that to say, that's where this queen mother of heaven kind of garbage came from is ancient paganism. It started all the way back at the Tower of Babel with Nimrod in the book of Genesis. And it went throughout all the cultures, even down to Egypt, that eventually became Isis and Horus. And that's probably who these ladies are lighting their incense to and the husbands are standing back going, we're gonna do whatever we want. 
And did you notice what they said? Um, verse 16, as for the word that thou hast spoken unto us, we will, um, uh, in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. But listen to what they said. We will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth from our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven. Do you realize how dumb that is? I'm gonna make this up as I go and I'm gonna say what I wanna say and I'm gonna make up my religion. That's basically what they're saying. And this, this gets back to the new religion I call relativism. I make it up as long as I like it and it's good for me. It may not be good for you, but it's good for me. So I'm gonna make it up. And, and somehow we've become this culture of people that think we can come up with a harebrained idea of what a religion should look like. And even though we just made it up in our brain and think it's true. And what substantiates, substantiates those claims that came up in your little brain about that religion. See, I love that as Christians, we have this most impressive, powerful, inspired word of God to back. It's not, you can't say anything that, you know, we worship or believe or how we worship or how we gather, none of it came from Brett's brain or none of it came from Billy Graham or none of it came from Charles Haddon Spurgeon or Finney or Tory or any of those guys. It comes from the, infallible, inspired word of God. And everything we do should constantly be measured with the word of God. And the reason I kind of harp on that is because man, we're living in a culture that we've lost our minds. We're so open-minded that our brains have fallen out. <laughs> and I wanna say, let's get back to the book. Let's just stick to scripture. And even when it hurts, even when we don't like what it says, we're gonna stick with it. Um, and by the way, you know, even though culturally what I said about women's role in the church is so unpopular and people are, I'm sure they're already blogging as we speak. Um, but but I, I, I've got to say, as it turns out, if you give it some time, it just really works. Everything the Bible tells us really works. When men step up and lead in the church, I've found women actually generally like that. They love it when the men step up and lead and are interested in things that are spiritual and pray and seek the Lord. And, you know, in the same way that Eve wanted to seek, you know, enlightenment, when a man says, I'm gonna try to grow in my understanding of who God is, I, I found that women generally say, that's what I'd like my husband to do. And if he'll do that, man, that'll make us all happy. Um, the church has been misled in so many ways because they've forsaken what the Bible says. How's that all working out? It's not working out so good. We've lost our way. Um, you know, I remember uh, reading an article a while back that kind of intrigued me. Um, it was Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware started remarketing their whole thing. You see, before they were marketing everything, this is, this is back a few years, but, um, but they were marketing for the 50-something-year-old woman. You know, the career woman who, you know, had the, you know, the, the, the great job, and they were trying to market to that lady but they realized that that's not who was coming to Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware. At the time, they realized it was a bunch of young moms who wanted to make their homes cozy and classy and cool. And so they, re they, 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 they rethought their whole marketing strategy. Said so instead of going for the career woman, let's go back to the young 20-something who loves to keep home and make it look awesome. And, and so you, you, you hear this, this change and then suddenly Pottery Barn and Restoration Hardware, the reason this article was written is because both of them skyrocketed when they marketed to the mom and especially, and this is what the article said, this was a secular article, the, the stay-at-home mom was their target. That was interesting and things boomed. 
You know, what about Joanna Gaines and Chip and all this stuff? You know, here's a mom who likes to make a home beautiful and nice. And she's like the most popular woman in the universe. Talk about a queen mother, Joanna Gaines, uh, for some of you. Uh, be careful, don't be lighting incense to Joanna. She's pretty amazing, but not that amazing, right? But the, the, the homemaker and somebody who makes their home cozy and nice and stuff like that, that's not out of style, believe it or not. Even though the, the world would lie and say, yeah, women are better than that. They shouldn't have to keep the home or make the house nice. Well, that's what the women's lib movement tried to do. So when you do go with the Bible, it's amazing how people kind of go, wow, this feels right. And this is good. And it makes for happy families and happy kids and it's just something that's totally contrary to what our culture teaches. Well, that's where these, <clears throat> excuse me, people were. Wow, it's late. Better get going. <clears throat> well, uh, we go on and they say, we're gonna do whatever we say out of our own mouths. That's what they said. <clears throat> um, pick it up now. The third and final section, the first one, of course, <clears throat> was the indictment against the remnant. The second section was the answer of the remnant, verses 15 through 19. And now we finish this chapter, Jeremiah's answer to the remnant. Verse 20, then Jeremiah said unto all the people, to the men and to the women and all the people that had given him that answer saying, the incense that you burn in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your princes and the people of the land did not the Lord remember them and came it not into his mind so that the Lord could no longer bear because of the evil of your doings and because of the abominations which you have committed. Therefore is your land a desolation and an astonishment and a curse and without inhabitant as of this day, because you have burned incense and because you have sinned against the Lord and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, nor walked in his law, nor in his statutes, nor in his testimonies. Therefore, this evil has happened unto you as at this day. Moreover, Jeremiah said unto all the people and to all the women, hear the word of the Lord and all Judah that are in the land of Egypt. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel saying, ye and your wives have both spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands saying, we will surely perform our vows and we have, uh, that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her you will surely accomplish your vows and surely perform your vows. Therefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, all Judah that dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, saith the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God liveth. This is one of the saddest scriptures, I think, in the Bible. You know, it, it, the Lord says, okay, you want that? I'm gonna give it, and, and you're gonna get what you want. You're gonna light incense. You're gonna worship these goddesses and what have you, and I'm out. And this echoes Genesis chapter six, verse three. It talks about how the Lord's spirit will not always strive with man. There's a point where God will lift his spirit from trying to nudge a person in the right direction. This is one of those cases. Um, it's also in Romans chapter one, uh, you know, verses 21 through 25, where the Lord says, I gave them over to their lusts. I gave them over to their, you know, sinful desires. This is one of those occasions. There's a few times in the Bible where a person's been totally given over. Did you know King Saul was one of those guys in the Old Testament? And the Lord says, King Saul, you've gone so far. And, and the words are this, the Lord says, 
I withdraw my mercy from you, King Saul. How good are we without God's mercy? Without God's mercy, what do you have? Nothing but hell and death eternity. That, that's why I believe one of the few guys in the Bible we know for sure is gonna be in hell is King Saul because the mercy of God was lifted and the Lord's not gonna force his mercy on anyone. This is one of those occasions these people are gonna to totally forget the Lord and they are committing what the New Testament would ultimately call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to speak against the work of the Spirit to point to their need for salvation. And the Lord says, okay, it's it, it's over, it's done. What a sad, sad thing. You know, as before we read the rest of this chapter, you know, we think our blessings are because of our sin. Hey, I'm living in sin, but I'm still being blessed. Um, but we mistake God's patience for his acceptance. And that's the problem. These people thought, well, things are going great. So they kept doing their pagan practices. And the Lord says, nope, time's up. Verse 27, behold, I will watch over them for evil and not for good. And all the men of Judah that are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword, by the famine until there be an end of them. Yet a small number that escape the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah and all the remnant of Judah and all that are gone in the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall know whose word shall stand, mine or theirs. There's gonna be a tiny group to be able to say, you know what just happened? They'll be able to say. Verse 29, and this shall be a sign unto you, saith the Lord, that I will punish you in this place, that you may know that my words shall surely stand against you for evil. Thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give Pharaoh, Hophrah, king of Egypt into the hand of his enemies and in the hand of them that seek his life as I gave Zedekiah, the king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, his enemy, and that sought his life. Let's do chapter 45. It's, it's not long, five verses. Here we go. <laughs> Verse one. And the word that Jeremiah the prophet spake to Baruch. This is, a, this is a chapter for Baruch. And by the way, this is out of order, like most of Jeremiah. This goes... Uh, to more linked to chapter 36. Remember chapter 36 was the chapter where Baruch wrote the scroll and, and um, Je Jehoiakim chopped up the word and threw it the fire, remember that? This is the chapter now God's saying, Baruch, I got something I gotta tell you. And it's five little verses. So to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he had written these words in the book of the mouth, uh, at the mouth of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, so this puts it back to chapter 36 that dating there. Thus saith the Lord, verse two, the God of Israel unto thee, O Baruch, thou didst say, woe is me now, for the Lord hath added grief to my sorrow. I fainted in my sighing and find no rest. Thus, saith thou, uh, uh, thus shalt thou say unto him, the Lord saith thus, behold, that which I have built will I break down, that which I have planted will I pluck up, even this whole land, that's the opposite of what he said, remember last week? And seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not, for behold, I will bring evil upon all flesh, saith the Lord, but thy life will I give unto thee for a prey in all places whither thou goest. In other words, I'll let you sneak away for your life, but don't seek glory for yourself. Apparently, Baruch, Jeremiah's scribe, went through a season where he wanted a little bit of the glory. Hey, we're gonna be famous. I helped Jeremiah write the Bible. Uh, and, uh, and, and the Lord's saying, man, don't, don't worry about who gets the credit, Baruch. It's been said, there's no end to what God can do through, through a man or a woman who doesn't care who gets the credit. 
It's true. But if you're seeking glory, you know, and, and accolades to do stuff for the, uh, you know, um, praise of men, Jesus said, man, that is your reward. When people come up and pat you on the back and say, oh, nice job, good work. That's your reward, congratulations. But the people that do stuff in secret, and even when things don't work out very well for them, and even if they suffer in this lifetime, Baruch is told here, just do what you're told to do and don't worry about who gets the glory. That's a good word for all of us, you know. Um, I think some of you that are doing some of the behind the scenes stuff, uh, where no, no glory, no credit, some of you parking lot attendants out there in the cold and the rain and snowmageddon that's coming tomorrow. <laughs> um, you know, some of you in the nursery and the Sunday school teachers that are wiping snotty noses and, you know, down there just loving on kids and stuff that, that nobody thinks to say thank you. And, uh, you know, parents look at you with skepticism. Are you a creep? Who are you watching my children? Well, you're actually, they're actually really nice people that are caring for our kids. But, but that's the reward that the Lord would say, man, don't worry about who gets the credit. Because in Hebrews 6, it says, the Lord is not unrighteous to forget the work and labor of love which you have shown to his saints and do show. Man, the Lord's gonna make it all come out in the end. If you get credit for what you're doing today, there's your credit. But if you do things in secret, nobody gives you a pat on the back, man, heaven glorious rewards are for you waiting there. Baruch had to sort of be sort of given a little wake up call, a little splash of cold water about his motive as to why he was hanging with Jeremiah, interesting. Well, in chapter 46, we'll start, a, I was hoping to get to chapter 51 tonight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you mock me, you laugh a little too hard there. Um, but uh, chapters uh, 47, uh, 40, 44, 45, 46 through, 40, for, through 51, 46 through 51, are um, God's gonna hand out the judgment to all the nations. And we're gonna start with Egypt uh, starting next Wednesday night. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for your word that is true and powerful, Lord. And, and we confess that human nature is to make stuff up as we go, to choose what we like or don't like that your word teaches. But Lord, I pray that you'd raise a whole new generation of especially young people who would be just stick sticking to your word like glue. No matter what our culture demands or what people like or what's popular, Lord, I pray that we would have a, a group of people that will come not only here just in this building, but online that, Lord, thousands and tens of thousands of people would just stick to your word. Lord, that we would just not be legalistic, but champions of truth, um, standing on what is right. And even if our culture fights against it, Lord, I pray that you'd give us a boldness, but a love and a kindness. I pray that we'd have that perfect balance. And I thank you, Lord, here at Athey Creek for the men that lead and that are praying through and covering this congregation. I thank you so much for the women who bring real life to this congregation and, and a passion for you and a love for you. I thank you for, for so many who've, who've seen the calling of motherhood as something that's not to be tossed aside but something that's to be valued and honored and, and cherished, Lord. And I pray that more and more moms would feel that calling and, and, and truly that their lives would be blessed as they pour into their homes and their children. Lord, bless them, I pray. For our singles in the church, Lord, those that are still just, um, just searching your plan and purpose, I pray that you give them clarity 
and that they would have a calling upon their life where they could use their singleness, Lord, for great things, um, that you'd empower them by your spirit, like Paul, when he said, I would that you'd be single, Lord. I pray that, that our young single people would um, know, and even our older single people would know for what purpose they are single. Not asking the question, why am I single, but for what purpose? Lord, may you show that to them and reveal your plan and your purpose in them. So bless your church, I pray you. Bless these people who've taken out this time on this Wednesday night to study your word. May it bring forth good fruit in Jesus' name. Amen.